We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5 today. Thanks, brother. They don't usually clap for me when I come up. Today they did. <laughs> it is Father's Day. If you've been at this church for a long time and you're a parent, you might remember years ago when your children would enter TCC, I was renowned for trying to slip them a piece of candy. Little did I know sugar is now anathema among all mothers, and so I figured out pretty quick when I got the bad stink eye from the mom. Uh, so I've changed my tactics, a little more self-serving. You wouldn't know this if you don't have kids, but sometimes when the children come in, I will... Uh, attempt to corner them and inform them that TCC indeed has a taxation system and there is a pastor tax. Pastor must be taxed with candy. It never works. Until today, one child gave me chocolate peanut M&Ms. Yeah, so it must be Father's Day, right? So this is the greatest weekend, the best holiday on our calendar. <laughs> we, uh, we celebrated it yesterday. I wanted to share with you my five-year-old's card to me. Like the ancient Berber tribe, he writes from the bottom going up. But you can see. He says, Dear Papa, you make food. Love, Asa. That's not untrue. And uh, I'm very thankful for that. That's who I am. Maker of food. But uh, happy Father's Day to all fathers. Uh, this season at TCC is camp season. So next week, I'll be going with the TCC youth, some of them, to uh, Myrtle Beach. We will hear David Platt speak and involve ourselves in some cool things for a week. So we're excited about that. The following week after that is TCC Summer Kids Camp. Yeah, we'll all be here with kids from our church and in the community and the theme for that camp this year is love God, love people. That's the message we'll be sharing, love God, love people. And we've been studying through Ephesians, the book, on Sunday mornings. Today we arrive at Ephesians 5, and this is kind of a love God, love people type of text. Love God, love people. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 5 in Ephesians. I'll tell you what I mean. You'll see it, hopefully. Paul writes there. Kind of a summary statement here. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God. That's the love God part. As beloved children, walk in love. That's the love people part. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant, a fragrant, fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's more loving God stuff. Love God, love people. Best example of this, Paul says, Jesus, of course. What greater example than for someone to give up his life so that others might live? Christ loved God so much that he wanted his glory to extend to all people, so he loved you through sacrificing himself. Love God, love people. Through his death on the cross, you no longer have to be a slave to sin. You can have Life forever. Now he's going to finish 
the rest of this section of Scripture down through verses 14 that we will look at today. And he's going to warn us of some things that will hinder your love for God and your love for people. All right? Two temptations, two dragons that we must slay if we are to love God and love people. And they are sexual immorality and jealousy. All right? It was 15 years ago when we were planting this church. I remember sitting down with a much older, much wiser man, and we were asking this guy, do you think if we brought the gospel to this neighborhood, would it be received? And I remember he said, you know, I think people will listen to you unless you try to go to two areas of their life. And he said, one is sex, the other is money. This is the Bermuda Triangle of gospel application. If you go in there, get lost forever. A no-fly zone, if you would. And yet, Paul goes there. Today, we'll hear a number of uh, excuses in our culture today. If you ever try to talk to someone, presenting Jesus to them, or confronting them with the sin, the evil of sexual immorality, or the evil of materialism or jealousy. You hear a lot of excuses. You might hear, it's none of your business, right? What are you talking? This is my private stuff, man. Get out of my business, none ya. You'll hear that. I've heard it. Or you might hear, I'm not hurting anybody. In fact, the way I'm living is actually enhancing everybody's experience. This week I saw a YouTube video that went viral. And the guy actually used both of these excuses in the same clip. You may have seen it. It was a uh, gospel, social, uh, a prosperity gospel preacher named Kenneth Copeland, huckster from way back. He was being uh, confronted by a reporter, Lisa Guerrero, about his lavish lifestyle. He just bought uh, Tyler Perry's private jet so that he can fly all over the world. He's driving limos. And uh, she comes up to him and she says, how do you feel about living like a rock star and yet the people who support you are living very poor? And his first answer was, none of your business. But then he figured out, oh, that doesn't look good. And so he backpedaled and he said, hey, you need to listen. If I don't have all this money, there's no way I can serve poor people. I have to be excessively rich. Except you smelled it. You smelled deceit. It didn't hold water. But these excuses are out there all the time. Stop hating. You hear that, right? Tell somebody sexual immorality is wrong, and they'll say, hey, you disagreeing with me? Stop hating me. Or you might hear, who are you to judge me? You think you're better than me? Who are you to talk into my life? You hear these things all the time. Or maybe you've heard this one. How can God give me a desire and it be wrong to act on it? Right? That's an excuse that you will hear if you talk to anyone about sexual immorality. I'm really thankful that the Apostle Paul got out ahead of the issues 2,000 years ago. Right? He wrote about this stuff. None of this surprises God. You can be assured of that. And today, as we read through the Scriptures, we're going to see that God gives us Four fantastic reasons to flee sexual immorality and jealousy. Four good reasons 
to flee sexual immorality and jealousy. Let's look at the first one here. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. The first idea is that if you linger in immorality and jealousy, you could lose something precious. All right? You could lose something precious. I get that mainly from verse 5, but let's begin reading in verse 3, where the Apostle Paul says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity, impurity here appears to mean a very similar thing to sexual immorality, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, covetousness, which is a fancy way for saying jealousy with a little flavor of greed. I'll call it jealousy because uh, I can't say the other word. Uh, but he says, jealousy and sexual immorality must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, verse 4. And in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Verse 3 Look at it long before in J.K. Rowling's 1990s England where Lord Baltimore had the name that could not be named. Long before that, Apostle Paul said there are two enemies that shall not be named. Jealousy, sexual immorality. The filthiness, dirty joking of verse 4. That type of speech is speech filled with sexual innuendos and Paul said you should have none of it. It's out of place. Now, if you look at verse 4, it's very helpful in understanding the heart matters that are below your struggle with greed or sexual immorality. As Paul tends to do, he goes right for the heart, and he does it in a certain way. This is what he does. Let's say I told you that before I came up here today, I took a Zyrtex. If I told you that, you would not think that I had a bellyache. You would think that I had itchy eyes, I've been sneezing. You can tell by the medicine what the illness is, right? Paul does this here in verse 4. Listen to what he says the problem is. He says, let there be thanksgiving. All right? That's the medicine. The medicine is thanksgiving. What's the problem? What's the disease? The disease is discontentment. All right, sexual immorality and jealousy share the same DNA at the core. It is discontentment in God Himself. A married man content with the relationship that God has given him in Christ through his wife is not going to pursue adultery. All right, a woman whose trust in God is firm and content. If she has her kids in public school, she's not going to be jealous of the people in private education because she has a contentment that God's purposes are better. Thanksgiving and trust are the underlayment of the floor of virtue. And Paul wants you to know that this morning. So you can ask yourself some questions at this point, right? Where am I failing to trust God? If you find yourself struggling with immorality, 
or greed or jealousy of others? Where am I failing to trust God? Where is thankfulness being squashed in my heart? And how are these feelings impacting and being expressed through lust, pornography, sexual immorality, or materialism, jealousy, greed that Paul speaks of here? Verse 5 is going to bring up the first reason to flee these things. The first reason to flee immorality and jealousy is given in verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or jealous, there is no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God for you. All right? A straight talk. You need to let that land. I didn't write it. Paul wrote it, and it should sober you up. He could not be more clear here. If you are living captured by sexual sin and jealousy, you have no part in Christ's kingdom. Sobering. What do we do with that? Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about it. But first, I want you to hear some words from an article I read recently by Counselor Ed Welch regarding struggling with sexual immorality, struggling with the sin of viewing uh, pornography. And some of this can apply to jealousy too. Listen to what he says. He says, pay close attention to how you move towards pornography. Think of your predicament as kind of a voluntary slavery in that you're victimized by porn's allure, but intentional in its pursuit. Consider the details of the path you take. What are the lies that you believe that blind you? Is it God is not good, so I have to run here? Is it sin is really not so dangerous? That's not what Paul says. Think about what else is happening in your heart. Are you angry in those moments? Are you indifferent when you are jealous of someone else and you covet what they have? Are you apathetic? Are you stressed? Are you feeling like you just deserve a break? What do you really want? It's very interesting that Welch here uses the analogy of servitude or slavery, right? The danger with greed and with porn and with jealousy is that they can become your master, right? They can become your master. Jesus said as much in Matthew 6. Remember what Jesus said? He said, nobody can serve two masters. Why not? Because you'll either hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You can't serve God and money. He could have said, you can't serve God and sex, right? Jealousy and immorality are about devotion. This week, I don't know if you saw it, I saw in the news that New York, uh, the New Orleans Saints quarterback, Drew Brees, is in a lawsuit. Turns out he bought some jewelry, some diamonds, and get this, I kid you not, these diamonds are worth $6.7 million less than he thought they were worth. He bought them for like double that price, and he found out, he bought fool's gold. 6.7 million less. You think, well, that's a rich guy's problem. That's still 6.7 million dollars, right? 
Paul is saying to you, when you buy into sexual immorality or materialism, you're buying fool's gold. You will not be satisfied. You'll not be satisfied. It's fool's gold. Don't let your heart be captured by it. Don't lose something infinitely more valuable in Jesus Christ himself by playing around with these two things. That's the first reason. Second reason Paul is going to give here not to linger in sexual immorality and jealousy comes up in verses 6 and 7. And that reason is you gain something horrendous. All right? The first reason is you can lose something precious. Christ himself. You can miss Christ if you wallow in sexual immorality and greed and materialism. Secondly, he's going to say in verses 6 and 7, you can gain something horrendous. It's the other side of the coin. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't become partner with them. Don't become partners with them. We're warned here about deceivers in our culture. Empty words, though Paul doesn't elaborate here, empty words probably mean the idea, the concept, that it's okay just to mess around with materialism and jealousy. It's okay just to dabble in sexual immorality. But consider the church at Pergamum. Remember that church? We hear about this church. It has a funny name because it's a funny name city. In Revelation 2, verse 14, Christ is speaking through John to this church. And this is what he says there. Christ says, I have a few things against you. There's some among, among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, that's an Old Testament figure, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. You don't have to know all of the, their stories to understand what he's getting at. Jesus is saying to them, they were enticed to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and they committed sexual immorality. Jesus says, I have this against you, church. It's seeping in. Things that shouldn't be spoken about even. So shameful are seeking into the church. And for those who might be tended, tempted to kind of poo-poo sexual immorality, Paul says, the wrath of God cometh. The wrath of God is coming. Now, to be clear who he's talking about here in this text, earlier he used this phrase, sons of disobedience. Right in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 2, he mentioned the sons of disobedience, that these are disobedient people who reject God, and now he's telling us, don't align yourself with them. They're rejecting Christ and choosing something they think is better, but it's not. Don't partner your hearts with them. You could end up on the same wrath. The wrath of God is coming. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 34, spoke of this coming wrath. Here he's talking about a people of Edom in his day, but it's a picturesque description of what the coming wrath on all sinners is going to be like. Listen to how it's described in the ancient scriptures. 
For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, and the streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch night and day. It shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven will dwell there. He shall stretch a line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there's no one there to call it a kingdom. And all of its princes shall be nothing. Now we have to be wise when we read texts like this. Because when Paul gives his warnings, he's very black and white. All right, he doesn't mess around. We have to be wise and understand what he's saying. All right. So is he saying, like he said in verse 4, verse 4 described a Christian life where you're constantly putting off your old self, your old sin nature, and you're putting on a new self, one of life, one of a new creation, one of worshiping Jesus. So that's what he talked about in uh, chapter 4. Now he's moving to chapter 5. He's already mentioned the struggle that is Christianity. And now he's saying, well, if you're sexually immoral, if you're sexually immoral, the wrath of God's coming. We have to understand what he's saying here. Is he saying that if I take a bunch of youth to the beach with me this week, and one of the guys sees a woman in a bikini and lusts over them, is he saying your salvation's gone? Not necessarily. All right. If you're looking to buy a new home and you spend 30 minutes and you're looking after a home that's way out of your price range but your friend has one just like it and man, you want it and you're captured by it, does that mean you're going to hell? Read to sell, you're going to hell? Not necessarily. All right. I think what he's talking about here is that some of us can become defined by this. Here's four things that he's saying here. First thing I think he's trying to say is, first off, jealousy and sexual sin are serious. He's using heaven and hell talk because they are serious. It has a lot of victims, including yourself. Stop playing around with these things. Stop playing around with these things, especially with your devices, especially online. All right? If you think you're not hurting anyone through looking at pornography, or if you think going on Facebook and constantly comparing yourself to somebody else is harmless, Paul says otherwise. It's deadly. Sexual sin, the sin of greed, jealousy. It's very serious. Secondly, I think he's trying to tell us that some in our midst are pretenders. The church actually has people in it who say they want Jesus more than anything, but it turns out they're not even fighting. They're not even trying to put on the new self of uh, chapter 4. Instead, they're constantly dwelling in the old self. They're dominated by it to the point of idolatry. And the biblical word against idolatry is consistent. These fakers will be punished. They have no part in Christ's kingdom. They treasure sex and things more than they treasure Christ himself. Thirdly, I think he's trying to say, as he says clearly in verses 1, 
You are children of God. Verse 3, you are saints. A saint means someone who's been put apart for Jesus. You've been set apart as holy for Jesus. You're God's children. If God's spirit is in you, he will not let go of you. It's because of this that he calls you to greater holiness. Okay? He didn't write this to cause you to doubt. Believe me, as a pastor, Paul did not write this to cause you to doubt. To say, oh man, I lusted yesterday. I must be going to hell. Am I going to hell? Am I going to heaven? Am I going to hell? That's not what he wanted. The usefulness of these passages that give you severe warnings is they should make you run to Jesus Christ. You hear him talking about the coming wrath of God. You're supposed to turn, flee that, and run to the one who can satisfy you. You hear him say, if you're jealous, it's a big deal. If you're materialistic, if you're greedy, it's a huge deal. You're not supposed to say, wow, maybe my life has all been a skip. No, that's not what he's saying. It's not about doubting yourself. It's about turning yourself to Jesus. That's the call today. The wake-up call. He'll be clear about that later, but this is a wake-up call to come, put your faith in Jesus, trust Jesus, love Jesus, take Jesus as your own and treasure Christ. So we've seen a couple of reasons, fantastic reasons, to flee sexual immorality and jealousy. The first one, lose something precious. Second one, gain something horrendous. Look at the third one here. Comes up in verses 8, 9, 10. Thirdly, when you give in to sexual immorality and jealousy, you deny your identity. All right? You deny your identity. Identity is a great catchword in our culture right now. People are discussing it everywhere. Paul wants you to know you deny who you really are. He's getting down to the core essence of who you are as a human being. Look at verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now we get down to the nitty-gritty, the base of who we are. In the last chapter, remember, the metaphor was clothing, now the metaphor, light, darkness. Jesus used this image, you might remember, right? John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world, said Christ. Whoever follows me, not walk in darkness, but will have what? The light of life. So Paul is following suit here with Jesus. And he is assuring us that our identity the essence of who we are is light. Notice verse 8. Look at the precise language he uses here. Verse 8. When we were unbelievers, we weren't just in darkness, right? That's not what he says. We were darkness. But now, you're following Christ, you're not just in light. You are light. In Christ. It's who you are. You have been converted. You have the Holy Spirit. You are justified. You will be glorified. 
You are a new creation. You are the body of Christ. You are light. That's who you are. That's good news. Don't deny that by running after these dark and dank and moldy lesser joys. This week, Southern Baptist Convention met in Birmingham. For those of you who follow such things, you may have uh, seen that they discussed this issue of identity. And they discussed it in part around this very text in Ephesians 5. If you don't know what this is, this is a bunch of passenger, uh, uh, messengers and pastors from churches that get together and they discuss uh, what they might say about things. So one of the things, one of the resolutions they discussed was about identity. Here's what they said. The Bible does not label a Christian identity based on past actions or present temptations, but on present justification and future glorification. So it's dangerous for Christians to describe themselves or embrace a self-identity in ways that suggest affirmation of a sinful desire or unbiblical social construct. Translation, your sexual desires aren't your identity. All right? Your desire for things as strong as they are is not the core of who you are. Your identity is light. It's light. Being saved, being radiant because of the light of Christ in you, that's who you are. That's the core of who you are. But you can see how this worked. Last week, we had a pastor's retreat for two days. Thank you so much for allowing us to go and sending us. We went a little bit south to the resort town of Pinehurst. I don't know if you know about Pinehurst, but I don't go there much. You know why? <laughs> I can't afford it. You're right. Uh, every car that passed me was nicer than a car I dream about, right? <laughs> the houses there, they're either from the early 1900s or the late 1800s, and they have names. They're all manners. They have plaques there that tell you just how awesome these houses are. Of course, they have golf there. You know how much it costs? $400. $400 to play golf there. Went to a clothing store. Everything is like quadruple priced, and people are buying it. I'll take 10 of those. I'm like, what kind of world am I in? <laughs> but I tell you, to my shame, I started believing the lie. All right? I'm walking around. And I didn't feel big. I felt small, all right? It revealed in me what I think is truly valuable. I went to bed that night jealous. I was greedy. I woke up the next morning, happened to be outside doing my morning devotion. And it was early enough that I got to see darkness fade away, dawn come in, the sun rose, and there was light permeating everything. Light dominated the golf course. Light was over all the nice homes. And I thought to myself, I'm so thankful that my identity is in light and not in things of this world. And I need it. I need that reminder. Same thing with sexual immorality. We need to be reminded of who we are. And Paul says, when you dabble in these things, 
It's against your very identity. Turn back to who you are. Jesus is the light. You're in Jesus, so live like it. That's his argument here. That's his third argument, right? We've seen three of them. Don't wallow in sexual immorality or jealousy. Why? Because you could lose something precious. You could gain something horrendous. You deny your identity. And finally, verses 11 through 14, you miss your purpose. Ever wonder what your purpose in life is? Ah, man, why am I here? What's the meaning of all this? If you're philosophically bent at all, you've thought about this. Paul says, you will miss your purpose if you wallow in sexual immorality and jealousy. Read with me here, verses 11 through 14. Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful to even speak of things that people do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look at verse 11. Note the tone there of exposure, right? You're not to take part in evil, dark deeds. Instead, you are to reveal them. You are to expose them. Again, article I read from uh, Ed Welch is helpful here. Because he talks about this idea with sexual sin of exposing it. Going public, so to speak. Now, he's not talking about standing up on stage and announcing every bad thing you ever did. But with people in your small circle, he's talking about going public in your small circle about sexual sin. Listen to what he said. He said, this step is the hardest, or at least the most humbling. Pornographic desire thrives in darkness. That darkness, of course, isn't hidden from the Lord. And if we don't bring it to the light, he will. So we confess it to the Lord and we confess it to others. We confess it to others for two reasons. First, we need help. And God's given us others to pray for and help us. Second, we want to get as far away from the darkness, lies, justifications as possible. And transparency is a way to do that. We could easily argue that, ah, this sin is private. It's against God, so I should handle it privately with God. But... If we easily confess to God and refuse to confess to others, the authenticity of our confession is suspect, right? Openness is a way we can avoid being tricked by our own new justifications. Paul says it much simpler. Expose the darkness. And it occurred to me as I was driving to church this morning, this is how organized I am in sermon preparation, as I was driving to church this morning, this is where jealousy and immorality part ways a little bit. I think about it. With sexual immorality, usually the way it works in our culture is you know about it and other people don't, right? So if it's going to be exposed, you have to tell other people. Eventually it might catch up to you, but usually you're going to have to confess it. Jealousy doesn't work the same way, right? You ever been in a situation, 
heard somebody said or you said to yourself, man, she keeps posting on her social media that her daughter can read at age two. Well, big deal. You know, in that moment, you're not seeing yourself the right way. Somebody else has to come to you and say, yo, you got some jealousy going on. What? What do you mean? I'm just, I'm just making a statement. No, I think you're jealous. Other people have to come in and expose your own covetousness sometimes, your own greed. That's why we need each other. That's one of the points of Welch's thing. Now, what I want to point out here is, in verses 11 through 14, this is a a passage of function. It's a passage of intent. It's a passion of uh, destiny, a passage of purpose, right? You were created anew in Christ for a purpose. And that purpose is to be an agent of change. Positive change, not negative change. Circle back to the summer camp idea. Love God so you can love people. Treasure Christ so you can love others by shining Christ out. But when you're hooked up and involved and intertwined with jealousy or sexual immorality, You cannot do that. Your sexual immorality hurts people. Your jealousy hurts people. You're not changing them for good. You're changing them for bad. Well, what do you mean? Well, take sexual immorality, for instance. What does it tell people? It tells people that I am not content with the current sexual situation that I am in. Maybe you're married. God has given me this wife. And he has told me that I could experience Christ through fidelity to my spouse. And yet, I don't think that's good enough. I'm going to pursue sexual immorality. What does that tell people? Jesus must not be able to satisfy, right? He's not big. He's little, and I don't want a little God. Got plenty of those already. I don't want yours. You're not helping people when you pursue sexual immorality. Same thing with jealousy. What does jealousy say? The God of the universe who has all things has ordained your financial situation. He has ordained your social status. He has planned out every single item that you own right now, where you live, the car you drive, the education of your kids, the behavior of your kids. God's planned this so that he can develop you to shine Jesus. And when you say, you know what, that's not enough. I really wish I had this. This would make me happy. What does that say to the world? Oh, I get it. God's provision for you is not enough. You've got to take things into your own hands. And when they read that message... That's so harmful, it sets them on the path to destruction. You have to realize your function is to show people the glory of Christ. One way you do that is being satisfied with his purposes, with his plan, with his boundaries. And showing people the delight you can have in Jesus through those things. Now look at the last verse here. You might be someone, you don't like it when Paul warns you. 
don't like it when Paul talks about the wrath of God. I don't want to hear that stuff. This sermon sounds like a do not do list. You know, don't do sexual immorality. Don't do jealousy. I don't like that. If that's for you, the good part is at the end. Right? Paul now washes us with the gospel in verse 14 when he says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Where to get that line? We're not sure. It's composed of some sections of Isaiah, but what we think mostly, it was an AD 60 worship song. It was a part of the song that they sang. Everybody would know this lyric, like we sing uh, Victory in Jesus or any other song. Victory belongs to Jesus. You know what that is. You sing it. Now Paul is quoting a line from the early church hymn book, probably, and it is, Awake, O sleeper! Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is a plea. A plea to remember Christ and wake up! And it lands in a couple different ways. First, for believers. For those of us here in the church who struggle with jealousy or greed or sexual immorality, these sins of identity, Paul says, wake up and remember the gospel is good news. It's bad news that God is going to punish sin. But it's good news that he has provided the way of escape in Jesus Christ. Not just escape, but fulfilling life in Christ. Why does he use rise up language? Well, that's resurrection talk, right? You're sleeping. Wake up and rise up. In other words, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by his spirit, you're now connected to him and you can live victoriously by your own power. No, not by your power. How? Christ will shine his light on you. As he exposes this, this, and this, you rip it off and you become more and more like Jesus Christ. The resurrection promise here. God has created you to defeat sin. Chapter 4 told us this. Your old nature persists and it insists, but it does not rule. All right? Presence does not equal power. Sin might still be present in you. You might still have these desires, but you don't have to be a slave. You can rise up with the resurrection power of Jesus and overcome it. The victory belongs to him, even if it's a daily struggle for you. And mine is, you can live in the resurrection power and life each day. Taking Jesus, claiming him as better, denying other things. But I really, really want that. I really feel like that would make me happy. Deny it and find fulfillment in Jesus. Well, I'm not feeling fulfilled in Jesus right now. You've got to trust his promises that he will bring that feeling. The idea of future grace. It's coming. It's coming. That's what faith means. That's what trust means. You have to believe. You have to claim Christ as better. Another way this passage lands is to unbelievers. Right? To people who aren't Christians. And if I could speak just a moment to fathers here, this word is for you. 
We love your kids. They're made in the image of God, but they will not naturally turn to him. All right? Their identity is supposed to be little Christ mirrors, shining out Christ. But that's not the identity they're going to naturally choose. It's a supernatural, spirit-filled identity. So you are called in this text to constantly be waking them up. Arise! How do you do that? Regular times in the Word with them. Tell them the stories of rescue of Jesus in the Bible. Have them regularly among God's people. And know this. Know that they are watching. Probably the most formative thing about your kids' experience growing up is probably 2,000 instances where they get to watch you make a choice. Choose Jesus or choose something lesser? They're picking up way more than we give them credit for. And so, fathers, this is for you. Wake up your kids with the gospel. Wake them up with the victory of Jesus, the certain destruction if they leave Jesus, and the life that can be fulfilling because of the resurrection, presence, and power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, we acknowledge here the victory belongs to Jesus. It's only in Him that we can gain heaven in Christ and the new heavens and the new earth and all that belongs to it and miss hell and darkness and destruction. So we pray, come and wake us up from our slumber and our sleep. God, by Your Spirit, those unconverted among us, I pray that in this moment You would convert them Bring them from darkness into light. Release them to be all that you would have them be. Give them fulfilling life in Jesus Christ. God, we pray these blessings and many more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper now. Listening time is over. It's the due time of the service if you're here as a follower of Jesus. We want you to get to work now. Use your action and take the table. And when you do it, we're going to ask you to have this posture of heart. Just think about who's better. You're going to take the bread, representative of the body of Christ. You're going to take a cup, memorializing the fact that he spilled his blood for you to show off the glory of the Father and to redeem his people and also the promise that he's coming back. My question for you as you take the supper is, is he better? Ask him to show you his beauty. Ask him to show himself off as way better than the things of this world. That's what we're asking you to do if you're a follower of Jesus. Today's a little bit different. If you're regular here, we have tables up front. There's no table in the back today. There are tables up front. Whenever you're ready, just come, follow Jesus by taking the supper, bring it back to where you're sitting, and then when you're ready, you can take the Lord's Supper. So let's do that together now.